So uh, before I left, we were in Revelation chapter 20, and we were looking at um, just a couple verses. Specifically, we looked at uh, Satan's judgment. Revelation chapter 20, we were looking at the millennial kingdom. I mean, that's what we're going to be looking at today. But let me uh, remind you from last week, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So last time we looked at Satan and his character. We talked about him being judged, but we learned how not to be deceived by him. And we had that really cool magic trick that Ted did for us. I made the point that everybody can be deceived, and we tricked you right in front of your eyes. And I said, if we can do it, certainly Satan can do it. And so I gave you some pointers on how not to be spiritually deceived. But there's a couple of words here, two specifically, that I want to focus in on this morning. It's these last two words right here. Thousand years. You know, when you uh, put ten years off to the side, you call it a decade. You put a hundred years off to the side, you call it a century. You put a thousand years off to the side, you call it a millennium. This expression in Revelation chapter 20 is called the millennium. It's referring to the millennial reign of Jesus on planet Earth. And I'm going to spend this morning talking about it. Is that a hint you want me to give the announcement that we're trying to raise money to fix everything from the lightning strike? Is that what that was all about? <laughs> I do need to get an update on that, but for now, where did my mouse go? There it is. Are we good? All right. So I want to talk to you about the millennium, uh, the character of the millennium. First of all, I told you, based on that passage of scripture, it's a thousand years. But there's a whole school of thought out there that this isn't to be taken literal. It's, it's figurative. And I, don't, I can't go with that. When I read the scripture, it says this. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? He's not bound? So then what's it saying? It just said he was bound. Well, yes, Steve, he's bound, but not for a thousand years. But it says a thousand years. So if it doesn't mean a thousand years, it might not mean he's bound. Yes, Steve, but it's not literally a thousand years. It's figurative. Based on what? I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says, look at a number and assume it's figurative. And if it's figurative, what's it figurative for? No time? Then he's not bound. Sometime. How much time? Well, we don't know. Well, how about a thousand years? I think we know. So I, 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 I can't accept that. It says a thousand years. It says believers will reign with Messiah for a thousand years. Does that mean he's not going to reign for a thousand years? Does that mean he's not going to reign? Oh, yeah, he's going to reign, but for some time. How much time? Well, I don't know. Well, I know. A thousand years. So, I take it very literally, and I've shared this with you, you know, a million times, and I don't exaggerate. <laughs> Told you a million times, quit your exaggerating. If the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense, or you'll end up with nonsense. It says a thousand years. It means a thousand years. In fact, in six verses, two through seven, a thousand years is mentioned six times. 
You don't get that in many places in Scripture. It says it over and over and over and over again, six times. So, how long is he going to be bound? I don't know. How long is the millennium? Well, by definition, it's a thousand years. So now we'll have to come up with a new name for it if it's not a millennium. But it is. Now, why do people reject the millennium? I'm trying to be careful how I say this. Because I've watched enough Donald Trump lately to know you can get yourself into trouble by what you say. <laughs> and I'm no Donald Trump. But I do put my foot in my mouth a lot. So you're just going to have to bear with me. I'm going to say it the way I say it, and then I'll try to explain it. And I mean what I say, I just might not mean it as bad as you take it. <laughs> Anti-Semitism. The nature of the millennium is Israel-centric. And when I say anti-Semitism, and when I say I don't mean it the way I say I mean it, I don't think that everybody who doesn't believe in a little millennium is anti-Semitic. That's not what I'm trying to say. But the theology that supports spiritualizing the millennium originates in an anti-Semitic milieu. That's what I'm saying. The only reason to reject this is because there's this concept that God is done with the children of Israel. And if God's done with the children of Israel, then the millennium can't be true because the millennium is Israel-centric, which I'm going to demonstrate in just a moment. That's my next point. But wait a minute. If God is done with the children of Israel, we've got some serious problems. Because God said, and I quote to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. End quote. He said in Jeremiah chapter 31, if the stars stop shining and the waves stop roaring, then I'll be done with the Jewish people. That hasn't happened. That won't happen. That's the point. God made a bunch of promises to the Jewish people that have not yet been fulfilled. So when will they be fulfilled? In the millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about a little later. But I do want to make this point. You ask the typical person who says God is done with Israel, the typical theologian. And when I talk about these typical theologians, they're not like some fringe group of Christianity. Otherwise, I wouldn't be wasting my time talking about them. They're a huge portion of Christianity. It's a major theology in Christianity. God is done with the Jewish people. Well, God made eternal promises to the Jewish people. What about those? And here's what they say. Those promises are transferred to the church. So God doesn't keep his word. Yes, he does. He kept the promises. Listen, if I come up to Lord and say, I'll give you $1,000. And I say, but I'm transferring it over to Minnie. <laughs> Am I keeping my word? Of course not. I made her a promise. Making, giving that promise to somebody else is breaking my word. God made promises to the Jewish people that have not yet been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in the millennium. So I told you that the millennium is Israel-centric. There's so many passages of Scripture that bear this out. You have to almost spiritualize almost every prophecy to not believe this. But here's what one piece of it looks like. I'm in Isaiah chapter 2. And here's what it says. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. The latter days. That's the key part for that portion. 
The, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, or the Torah, and the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. Many nations haven't come there to be taught the word of the Lord. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. It has not yet been exalted above all the hills. Not yet. It will be. But the capital of this millennial kingdom is Jerusalem. The primary place of worship in the millennium is the holy temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. In fact, in Zechariah, it says every year, all the other nations that aren't part of Israel must make a pilgrimage to Israel once a year to worship God during the Feast of Tabernacles. So when Minnie got up here and said, hey, we're going to build a tabernacle, we're kind of practicing. We're getting ready for it. The capital of the Millennial Kingdom is Jerusalem. The primary place of worship is the temple. All nations will be required to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There are 14 that I know of millennial rulers mentioned by name in the Bible. Who's going to rule during the millennium? we got 14 names. There may be more. I only know 14. They're mentioned in the Bible, and they're all Jewish. I told you the millennium is Israel-centric, which is why I think many people have rejected it. Who are these 14 Jewish rulers in the millennium? The first one you know, Jesus, Yeshua. He's the first and the foremost. He told his 12 apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel when I come back. That's what he said. So now we have 13, the 12 apostles plus their master. And then listen to this one. It comes from Ezekiel 37. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them. I will multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, set them apart as special or holy. They will know this when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So David is mentioned by name as ruling during the millennium as well. First thing I wanted to tell you about the millennium, it's a millennium. It's a thousand years. It's literal. The second characteristic of the millennium is that the millennial kingdom is Israel-centric. One more thing on that, and then I'll move on. It's Israel-centric. Israel is restored and her covenants are fulfilled. I told you God made a lot of promises to Israel have not yet been fulfilled. One of them that comes to mind is the borders of the Holy Land. From the Mediterranean Sea to the Tigris-Euphrates River. That's not their borders today, but those are the borders mentioned in the scripture. From Syria, at least the southern part of it, down to, I think, Maybe Egypt, I'm not sure, I don't remember. But I do remember the Euphrates to the east. It's nowhere near there. That would be one example of a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. Listen to what Jeremiah 32 says. 
Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city. The city he's talking about in this context is Jerusalem. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in my great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. All right. That's good stuff. I could just make a whole sermon on this, these four, few verses right here. He says, I'm going to restore the children of Israel. In the late 1800s, Jewish people started coming back to the promised land. They had been dispersed for 18, 1900 years. And they started coming back in the 1800s. But in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, they started flooding back. And now there's millions of Jews back in the promised land. But there are still more Jews living outside the promised land than inside the promised land. So God might have begun fulfilling this prophecy, but he certainly hasn't finished fulfilling this prophecy. Especially because it says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. They're not there yet. They don't have one heart and one way. And they don't fear him. Most of the country is secular. But I think it's way cool, the verbiage here, I will give them one way. What did Yeshua say? What did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So this is a, a hint at saying they will believe in Jesus, which as a nation they do not yet. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. God said he will fulfill his promises to the children of Israel. Now, I want to step aside for just a minute. I read to you a moment ago, the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I will establish my covenant. They will fear me forever. This idea of God's law and God's fear, I want to talk about that for a minute. I used to think, even as a believer, of God's law like a sledgehammer. All the thou shalt nots were on it. And it was almost as if God couldn't wait to just whack us when we broke one. Because don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. There's so much that we weren't supposed to do. And so much we were supposed to do. But I've grown. And I've learned that that's not how God is. So I no longer look at the law of God as a sledgehammer. Now I look at it as a lifesaver. You know those rings they have on the boat when you fall in the water, they throw it out to you? That kind of lifesaver. Not the kind that you suck on it and it tastes like pineapple. What do you mean, Steve? How is the law of God more like a lifesaver than a sledgehammer? Because I'm still in the sledgehammer department. Well, here's what I mean. God's laws are not given to take away our fun and make it hard to live. God's laws are given to make our lives better and make it more joyful. Didn't Jesus say, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And he also said, obey God. 
So how is it that the laws of God that are don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do that, do that, aren't joy suckers, but they're joy givers? How is that? Well, let me give you a couple examples so you understand what I'm trying to say. One of the big laws in the Bible is you shall not steal, right? Is that a joy, joy taker? What if it was thou shalt steal? What if stealing was a good thing instead of a bad thing? What would you own? Nothing. Yeah, everybody else's stuff until somebody takes it from you. You can't own anything. Why would you work if everything you work for gets taken? Why would you strive? And then if somebody comes to take your stuff and you don't want them to take it, you might get into a fight. But that's okay because we're going to throw out thou shalt not murder. Go ahead, kill them. Because not killing them takes my joy. See, life is better when people don't steal, right? A society is better when people don't murder. Well, how about the adultery one? Oh, what a killjoy. God doesn't want me to have fun. Well, if the thou shalt not commit adultery wasn't in there, we'd all die of AIDS within a decade. You know, done. Humanity's done. I'm exaggerating a little, but my point is that thou shalt not co commit adultery has a lot of practical applications. Society is built on families. What happens to a family if you don't have a commitment to one spouse? And if you're sleeping with everybody everywhere, how do you know that the person you fall in love with isn't your sister? See, it doesn't work. God's way is the only way that works. And you can just throw that into all the commandments. So God's not sitting over us with a hammer. God's throwing us a lifesaver. I want you to have the best possible life. So to have it, don't drive 55 in a school zone where it says 15. Drive 15. Oh, you're a killjoy. No, I'm trying to keep you from killing joy. Don't steal. Treat people the way you want them to treat you. And on and on it goes. So the millennial kingdom is literally 1,000 years. First characteristic I wanted to share with you. The second, the millennial kingdom is Israel-centric. The third, and that's the one up on the screen here, the millennial kingdom, there will be peace on earth. Never seen that before. I read an article, it was well written, so I assume the person did their homework. He said, out of all the research he's done, in all of human history, he found a hundred years where there was no war. In all of human history, a hundred years of when there was no war. Wow. So when God says there will be peace on earth, people will be at peace with one another. We've never seen it. We have never seen it. I can't wait to see it. Isaiah 2.4. They'll make their swords into plowing blades and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, Lord, may that day come. In the millennial kingdom, people will be at peace with one another. But also in the millennial kingdom, animals will be at peace with people. Some of my favorite YouTube videos are the ones where animals of different species love each other and play together. 
and just hang out. It's like a taste of what we're going to see in the future. Here's what uh, Isaiah says. Wolves and sheep will live together in peace. Leopards will lie down with young goats. Calves and lion cubs will feed together. And little children will take care of them. Cows and bears will eat together. And their calves and cubs will lie down in peace. Lions will eat straw as cattle do. Even a baby will not be harmed if it plays near a poisonous snake. Can you imagine that? A child sticks his hand into a rattlesnake den and pulls it out. And it just looks at the child. And it shakes it. And it hears a rattle. Cool, now it's got a new toy. And he goes around all day rattling a snake. Going to put the rattle-making people out of business. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. In the land, the land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. This is going to be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. This is going to be good times. In the millennial kingdom, people will be at peace. In the millennial kingdom, animals will be at peace. In the millennial kingdom, even nature will be restored. I've had the privilege of going into the Dead Sea, which is one of the wonders of the world. Dead Sea is amazing. Um, you walk into it, and you get up to about waist level, and your feet just pop out from under you, and you're floating. It's a cool experience. It's nothing like it. You're just sitting in there like this in the Dead Sea. I had uh, my picture taken. I was laying like this on my back in the Dead Sea, and I flipped over. And I was on my chest in the Dead Sea. That's how buoyant you are. My feet up in the air, my face up in the air, floating on the water. It's cool. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because, well, it's a Dead Sea. There's so much salt in it, nothing can live in it. It's a Dead Sea. That whole region is just land-blasted. It's just salty, nasty. The Bible says the Dead Sea is going to come alive again, which is pretty stinking cool. By the way, there's uh, at least three famous seas in Israel. The Dead Sea, the, the Dead, the Red, and the Med. We need to come up with a way to say Sea of Galilee that rhymes with red so we can have four famous seas. The Dead Sea will come alive. By the way, the, the way the Dead Sea is dead is because it's the lowest point on earth. All the water in Jerusalem and so on and so forth works its way down and ends up in the Dead Sea. So water keeps coming into the Dead Sea, but it's got nowhere to go out. So it evaporates, but the salt doesn't evaporate. So the more that evaporation happens, the more salt transfers in. Evaporation happens, salt transfers in. Over the years, it's just become an extremely salty place. Plus, the region around it is salty, too. So how's it going to get cleaned? Magic. God's going to do it God's way. So I don't mean to be disrespectful when I say magic. It's going to be a miracle. God's just going to make it alive. Bible says Jesus is going to come back, and the Mount of Olives, which he's going to land on, is going to split into two. Okay? That'll make a straight path towards the Dead Sea. I already told you the water from Jerusalem goes down there anyway. Then it says, from his throne, bubbling water is going to issue forth. 
And it's going to get wider and deeper all the way to the Dead Sea. And by the time it hits the Dead Sea, it's going to make the Dead Sea fresh. And people will be fishing in the Dead Sea. Nature is even going to be restored during the millennium. That river that heads towards the Dead Sea, there's more said about it. Let's take a look. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. That's pretty cool. A fruit tree that never runs out of fruit. And it's going to be miles, I guess, of fruit trees. So I guess if you live anywhere in the Jerusalem area, you're not even going to have to work if you like fruit. And if you get sick, and I imagine there won't be a lot of sickness since nature is being restored, but there might still be some. The leaves, it says, are for the healings of the of people, for the healings of the nations, for medicine. So you wake up a little, eh, I got a headache, you go look for the Tylenol tree. Take one of those leaves, your headache's gone. Pretty cool. In the millennial kingdom, people will be at peace. In the millennial kingdom, animals will be at peace. In the millennial kingdom, nature will be at peace. And in the millennial kingdom, even death will be at peace. Somewhat. Death will be put to rest. <laughs> I tried. Isaiah 65, 20, here's what it says. No child will die in infancy. Everyone will live to a ripe old age. Anyone 100 years old will be considered young. And to die younger than that will be considered a curse. This translation says anyone 100 years old will be considered young. The King James Version says a child. So if you were to die at 100 years old, you'd be just like a child dying. How amazing is that? It's my firm belief that people in the millennium will not die. They'll live the whole thousand years. Why do I believe that? Well, because it just says if you die at 100, it's like dying as a child, for starters. But I know how the Bible started out. Right after the curse, lifespans were almost 1,000 years. And then they declined. Well, in the millennium, it's kind of like the curse is being reversed, more or less. Death is going to be put at rest, more or less. And people will not die unless they're cursed. To be to die younger than that will be considered a curse. I don't think you're going to die of any kind of disease because you got the disease tree. So if anybody gets sick, they just need a leaf off that tree. They're good. There won't be any hunger. There won't be any war. People won't die. The only way to die is if you're in sin and God judges you. So God is going to have a tight rein on things. You know, there might be in this wonderful, amazing paradise, somebody that wants to, I don't know, rape somebody. Well, they may try, they'll get stopped, and God will execute them on the spot. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. See, the curse isn't totally gone yet because sin isn't totally gone yet. But God's going to rule with a rod of iron. Jesus said he will rule with a rod of iron. So, in the millennial kingdom, even death will be at peace. And then lastly... In the millennial kingdom, believers will reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. Let me step back for a minute to my very first point. It's literal. 
if it's not literal, what do we do with all those passages of Scripture I just read about the millennium? You see? There's got to be a millennium. There has to be. Based on all those passages of Scripture. And I was just scratching the surface. So we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. And God has an amazing plan for our future. But what about right now? Right now, life is tough. Now, we're in training for that life. We're, we're like in school. We're in boot camp preparing for the kingdom that's to come. But we're not ready for it. So in my um, private devotions at home, I'm going back through the Bible in a year, and I'm in that part in Genesis where poor Joseph, poor Joseph, his dad says, son, go check on your brothers. So he goes, and his brothers say, look, he's alone, let's kill him. They don't like him because his dad's, he's his dad's favorite and because he's holier than thou. In other words, he's more righteous than they are. And he said he had a dream that someday that they would bow down to him. And they were just infuriated, so they decided to kill him. But the oldest brother said, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. See, the oldest brother had this plan. He was going to get him out of the pit and send him home. But all the others wanted to kill him, but they listened to the older brother. And when the older brother wasn't there, Joseph was in the pit, these slavers came by. They said, hey, why kill him? We can benefit from it. Let's sell him as a slave. We'll make some money. And they were all like, yeah. Nobody was there to stop him, so they sold off poor Joseph, who was just doing his dad's job, off to a slave to Egypt. Well, this captain of Pharaoh's guard, his name is Potiphar, buys Joseph. And he comes to find out that Joseph is an amazing man. He's got some serious management skills. So he puts Joseph in charge of his entire estate. Now, he was high up. He was royalty. I can only imagine he probably had herds and farms and industry, and he probably had trade with other countries. I don't know, but he was a wealthy man, and Joseph was put in charge of his estate, everything. Potiphar, just, he could just go fishing. Didn't have to worry about anything. Joseph was in charge. But Potiphar's wife had her eye on Joseph. He was a good-looking young man. And she said, come, lay with me. And he said, no. How could I possibly do that? Look how well your husband has treated me. He's given me everything except you. And you're his wife. How could I sin against God and your husband this way? I will not do it. Day after day, she came after him. Day after day, he refused. One day, she literally grabbed a hold of him. And he slipped out of his robe and ran. Well, she was so infuriated that she decided to accuse him of attempted rape. And she had his garment to prove it. So her husband believed her, idiot, and had Joseph arrested and put into prison. So there's Joseph in prison. And the warden, by the way, he's thrown into the royal prison where all the royalty are kept. And the warden notices in him the skills of a good administrator, a manager. And so he says, you know what? You're going to run the prison. You're going to be in charge of everything. I'm going fishing. Paraphrase. 
So Joseph runs the prison. He goes from supervising for his dad to running an estate for, for a, a royal, and now he's in charge of a whole bunch of royals in prison. Their food, their medical care, their clothing, everything, he's in charge. Intake, outtake, I don't know how it all worked. Joseph's in charge. So one day, Pharaoh sends a, a, a baker and a butler. I was thinking the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Different story. <laughs> so he sends a baker and a butler to prison. And they have this God-inspired dream. And they, they were freaked out about it. And they were like in a bad state. And Joseph said, what's wrong, guys? He said, well, we've had this dream, both of us. And it's really upsetting us. And we don't know what to do about it. He said, well, God interprets dreams. Nobody else. Tell me your dream. So they told him the dream. And Joseph said, I know exactly what this is about. God has revealed it to me. Uh, baker, you're going to die. You know, you had a dream about baskets on your head and birds pucking out the food. You're going to die. Um, butler, you had a dream about squeezing grapes into Pharaoh's cup again. You will. You're going to be restored to your position. And sure enough, within a few days, the baker was executed and the butler was restored. But on his way out of prison, Joseph said, hey, do me one solid. I, did, I, I interpreted your dream. It was right. Do me one favor. Let Pharaoh know I was sold as a slave and unjustly imprisoned and get me out of here. So Butler goes working for Pharaoh. A year passes, two years pass, three years pass. Joseph hears nothing. Joseph is like, God. And I, the Bible doesn't say what his attitude was during any of this. But I know what I'd be doing. Like, do you hate me? My brothers want to kill me. They throw me into a pit. You let them sell me off as a slave. It was, and that was bad enough. Then I get accused of rape and thrown into prison. And now I've been here for three years. Even when there's a chance I can get out, you don't let me out. That's how I'd be. But maybe Joseph was more like, God knows what he's about. If he wants me in prison, I'll be in prison. But if I can get out, I'll, I'll get out. I don't know how he was like. I just know he was in some bad way. So Pharaoh has a God-given dream one night, and he wakes up all distressed, and he tells, he gathers all the magicians together, and he says, I had this horrible dream, it's stressing me out, I've had it a couple of times, and what does it mean? And all the magicians are like, we don't know. And the butler's like, oh, I remember, there was this guy in prison, we had a dream, me and the baker. Remember the baker you killed? Yeah, and you, he, he told us that was going to happen. He can do dreams. Pharaoh said, well, go get him. So they went and got Joseph out of prison. Pharaoh told him his dream. He said, I don't do dreams. God does dreams. Tell me your dream. He tells him, he said, I know exactly what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt like you have never seen. Your barn, you're going to have to build new barns. But they're going to be followed by seven years of drought. So bad you'll forget the plenty. It'll be the worst drought the world has ever seen. Famine, it'll be horrible. So let me give you some advice, Pharaoh. During those seven years of plenty, set up somebody to oversee food collection and store up as much food as you possibly can so you'll be ready for the seven years of famine. You know, Pharaoh said, that's a good idea. I should get a really smart administrator to run my empire for me. Joseph, what are you doing for the next several years? You're hired. You are now my right-hand man. In fact, you are going to run all of Egypt. I'm going fishing. Here, here's my signet ring. 
whatever you say, it's law. I'll be the only one higher than you. So why do I share all this with you? What in the world does this have to do with the millennium? If you remember, I said the millennium's gonna be great, but right now, not so much. Right now, there are tears. There's pain. There is sorrow. There's death. There's injustice. But we're in school. We're in boot camp. We're in training. Poor Joseph. What would have happened if his brothers didn't hate him, sell him off as a slave? What if Potiphar didn't appoint him as head of his estate to learn great management skills? Well, God gifted him. That's why he appointed him. But then he got to practice running the estate. He got to practice running the prison. And now he gets to run all of Egypt. What would have happened if Joseph wasn't put in that position? I'll tell you what would have happened. The whole Middle East would have died. Joseph was the guy that God used. But he had to go through that fire to be ready for how God used him. You're going through the fire right now. Are you going to be like me? God, do you hate me? Are you going to be like Joseph? Well, God, you know what you're doing. Use me, prepare me. If I got to suck it up through boot camp, I'll suck it up through boot camp. Just let me be useful. You know what I keep telling myself? Life is hard. No way around it. So I want to maximize it. I want to get everything good out of it I can get. And what I mean by that is I don't mean I want to get a lot of money and get a house in Aspen. Though that would be cool. What I mean that is I want to do as much good as I can do. I want to be as good as I can be. And I want to bless as many people as I can bless. I want to be as good as I can be in an evil fallen world in a fallen body. And I know I'm not going to get there, but I'm going to try because I want to maximize everything God will give me. Because this life sucks. And I want to take something good to the next one. And I want to be ready for it. And I'm not going to let this one get me down. I'm going to do my best to let God use me to his best. And I just hope that that's your prayer too. God has an amazing plan for his people. In fact, that this plan, this millennial kingdom I was telling you about, it's the answer to the Lord's prayer that he instructed us to pray 2,000 years ago. Saints have been praying for 2,000 years for this future. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. This is the answer to 2,000 years of the prayers of the saints. You know it's going to be good. Don't give up hope. There's a purpose in this. God is going to use you tremendously. Those who trust in Messiah Jesus will inherit the messianic kingdom. So I'm going to send you home with one question. Do you trust Jesus? Fully and completely, do you trust him? If your answer is no, or I don't know, please see me or one of our leaders Visit the visitor table. Talk to one of our musicians. And we will do the best we can to share the story of Jesus with you so that you can join us in that millennial kingdom. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I don't know what Joseph's attitude was like. I just know what mine's like. And it needs work. But I submit to you and ask you to do that work in me so that I could be your man and that you could use me like you used Joseph. So my life is not wasted. And I pray this prayer corporately, Lord, for all of us. 
that you would bless us and keep us and guide our very steps so that we can do more good than harm and maximize and increase your kingdom. Help us to love others as we love ourselves. Help us to treat others as we want them to treat us. Give us opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus with the lost world and open their hearts. Give us patience and passion. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.